This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Last spring, the Trump administration proposed overturning or at least freezing the fuel mileage standards that were put in place by the Obama administration. Analysis by the EPA and the U.S. Department of Transportation said that the cost of continuing the mileage goals of roughly doubling the fuel economy of vehicles by 2025 would be too costly for the auto industry. They said the standards should be held at the 2020 requirements. Passenger cars would have to range between 36 and 49 miles per gallon, while light trucks would have to average between 25 and 39 miles per gallon. But new research, partly from here at the Wharton School, disagrees with the new assessment by the Trump administration. Arthur uh, Van Bentham is an assistant professor of business economics and public policy here at Wharton, and he is one of the authors of the new study, Flawed Analyses of U.S. Auto Fuel Economy Standards, and he joins me in studio right now. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you. Um, So uh, by making these changes, I guess the goal of the administration, they believe, is to somewhat help help the, uh, the auto industry out, correct? That's correct to some extent, and the automakers have been certainly asking to loosen the standards a little bit. Although what's becoming increasingly clear is that the real effort in the background is being done by the oil industry. Uh, with recent reports coming out that um, oil companies like Marathon Oil and Exxon have been pushing pretty hard uh, to actually reduce these uh, these standards. So then in terms of their reporting, the EPA and the DOT, where is their, their logic flawed, I guess? So basically um, what the EPA is arguing right now is they're saying if we loosen the standards, if we freeze them at the 2020 levels, that's going to make new cars cheaper, right? There, there's not as much need to install expensive fuel-saving technology. Right. So more people will buy new cars. Um, new cars are safer. This, they have the latest safety features. So that would basically lead to, to fewer accidents and the roads. And that's, of course, an ex- extremely important benefit. Now, here's the elephant in the room. What you would expect if you loosen standards, uh, more people buy cars. Right. The fleet should... Um, become larger, but somehow magically, and this is a really important assumption in the current administration study, uh, even though economists would would perfectly predict that the fleet size should grow, um, the the EPA predicts that the total fleet of cars in the U.S. as a result of loosening standards would shrink by about 6 million cars, and that runs counter to any sort of basic economic logic. What do they base that that estimate on? Because you're right, if you think about it, if if you lower the standards, and if it can lower costs, which I think is debatable to begin with, with the way that we're going in the auto industry right now with technology and, and what people want in their cars, you would think that the numbers would increase. You would absolutely. There's this is sort of basic econ 101 that seems to be violated in the uh, in the uh, regulatory analysis. Um, yeah, so this is quite puzzling. We've basically dived into these reports. It came out. Um, it's actually uh, it's pretty fun. It's a 1625 page document. So Holy it, cow! <laughs> it takes just a while. Some, just some light reading for you there, it's right? Some light reading that's being put together by hundreds of people. So it's not the most sort of you know beautifully written novel you can imagine. Right. Um, but actually, yeah, there's a lot of inconsistencies, um, sort of assumptions. I think there's assumptions on the new market uh, for cars. But the way that the Department of Transportation models how the used fleet develops as a result of changing in the new car market, 
uh, is very sort of ad hoc and pieced together. And I think, um, you know, it just doesn't, the end result is that it's an internally inconsistent uh, fleet model. So if you go by the economics that the Trump administration would put at 2020, and I, I think if I did the math correctly, that would get us to about 80% of what the Obama administration was hoping for if you get to the 54 and a half, correct? That's correct, although the levels, so that indeed it's about an 80% of the original target. Right. Um, I should add though that whenever you read in the newspaper 55 miles per gallon, it's good to be aware this is regulatory miles per gallon and it's basically right. based on these lab tests that are nowhere near actual fuel economy. So the, the numbers to keep in your head are is the original standard might have uh, gotten us to about 36 miles per gallon on road real world fuel economy by 2025. And now the average new car may only get something like 30. And what is the impact, uh, you think, on on the on the citizens, on our culture, on our uh, on our environment by not reaching those standards that uh, that the Obama administration put into play? Okay. Well, I think society is going to lose money, right? So basically in 2016, the previous administration had put together a similar analysis in which right. they looked at the uh, the proposal to tighten these standards all the way up to 2025. Right. They found significant benefits to society. So sure, it costs a little more to install these technologies, but there's massive benefits of a slightly smaller fleet, so fewer accidents. There's environmental benefits, not just greenhouse gases, but also air pollution. Um, so basically, by relaxing the standards, we're throwing away all those benefits. And so what were the, ma the major differences between the 2016 report and the 2018 report? Right. So there's a couple. I would say the, 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 the error that we just talked about is a massive one. So the way uh, that, the used car, that the total car fleet is modeled is dramatically different. The other big difference is that uh, the technology costs for meeting the standards in the new report it's about twice as high as the, the, the technology estimate in the previous report. So all of a sudden, in two years' time, um, the, the Department of Transportation has become much more pessimistic on uh, how cheap it will be to meet those standards. We're joined by Arthur Van Bentham from here at the Wharton School. He is part of a reporting uh, about the U.S. fuel economy standards, the report called uh, Flawed Analysis of U.S. Auto Fuel Economy Standards. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. What about the impact of something like greenhouse gas emissions as well? So... That's, uh, of course, one of the key reasons that the previ previous administration had to, um, uh, to impose these standards. Now, under the current analysis, because the prediction is that the fleet size will go down, um, we also see there's a very limited impact on greenhouse gases. Now, we as a research team disagree with that in the sense that we don't agree that the fleet size will shrink. And once you sort right. of add back those six million missing cars, there's actually a, a pretty sizable increase in greenhouse gases. Will those missing cars be ones that are associated as new vehicles coming onto the market or, uh, or used cars? Because we're also seeing a rise of the used car market, especially yeah. in the last few years as well. In this current analysis, it's mostly going to be uh, more used cars. There's missing used cars in the fleet. Um, not only are used cars less fuel efficient, but also in terms of local emissions, so carbon monoxide and, 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 and other uh, local air pollution, 
uh, older cars are disproportionately more polluting. Um, so that's actually has a very, very big impact on the total environmental cost of the rollback. Because the longer they're on the road, you have more chance for for failure or, or a, a problem with emissions. Exactly. Yeah. Basically, when you buy a new, a new car, your fuel economy is fairly stable over its lifetime, but your local emissions uh, exponentially grow as your car gets older. Now, you mentioned also before with the auto industry, uh, they also benefit from fuel credits uh, as part of this process as well. How does that play into potentially their want to keep these standards a little bit lower? Well, so maybe uh, let me take a step back here and, and sort of explain what these fuel credits are. So basically, I think the reason there's what, there's a reason we haven't discussed yet why I think the uh, the current administration is a bit overly pessimistic on technology costs. And the reason is that um, manufacturers can trade so-called compliance credits. So what does that mean? It means that let's say a Ford has a very hard time meeting the standard. Right. Uh, but Toyota is more uh, sort of able to, they can more cheaply produce these efficient cars. Um, Toyota will generate some excess compliance credits, which they can sell to Ford, and both companies will benefit from those trades. Now, in the current analysis, uh, the government is explicitly not considering such flexibilities. And as a result, if you basically assume that every manufacturer for every car they sell needs to separately meet the standard, um, you're going to find it's much more expensive than reality in which right. uh, firms can trade with one another. And I think this is one of the reasons why the current report is extremely pessimistic and more so than it should be about the actual cost of those standards. Arthur Van Bentham here at the Wharton School joining us here in studio. Your comments at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. You know, this obviously is coming, this discussion coming at a time where we're seeing more and more automakers investing in electric vehicles, or at least in the technology, and obviously uh, in autonomous as well. And these are going to be components uh, of these companies, of the automakers, in the next few years moving forward. Absolutely. And um, so that's actually – there's a very interesting interaction between the rollback of these standards and certain states in the U.S. that are moving in the opposite direction – where sort of completely um, um, independently of the cafe fuel economy standards, there's also states like California, which is basically followed by nine other states that set more and more stringent targets for, for example, a minimum percentage of electric vehicles that need to be sold every year as a fraction of total new sales. And uh, so we're basically, uh, while the federal government is loosening uh, the federal standards, states are tightening the belt elsewhere in the system. And there's been talk about whether or not California is going to be able to keep those standards because they were kind of the outlier uh, being given the ability to have their own standards many years ago. Yeah, the next year is going to be absolutely fascinating. So we're going to see California probably followed by a bunch of other states going to the, the federal courts and appeal not only the, ro the proposed rollback of the CAFE standard that we just talked about, the other, maybe even bigger issue is that the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, wants to revoke the waiver that California has historically had to set more stringent environmental policy for cars than the rest of the U.S. Mm -hmm. If the, uh, the current administration succeeds in withdrawing that waiver, it means that California needs to get rid of all its own electric vehicle policies, <laughs> which would be a massive shock to the system. So this is going to be an absolutely fascinating uh, sort of thing to watch 
And I'll add that, that the car market is about a third of all U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. So this is not small stuff. This is a big deal. How, how important is the EV industry to California right now? Uh, I mean, it, it is very important, clearly. Um, you know, it's a, California is a state where most EVs are sold. It's also a front runner. It, it, te- it tends to set national policy with a lag. Um, sort of, ca- the, the EV industry looks at California as the as the leader. Wh- whatever they decide has has major implications on the market. So, you also mentioned in the report uh, about design and design time, uh, and the I guess the assumption that. Uh, the auto industry uh, believes that they would not have enough design time to continually update year by year the standards that they would have to meet with their with their vehicles. Now, it's not necessarily the car itself, but it's the technology and the and the systems within the car so that you can continually hit the the higher standards. Correct. That's correct. Yeah, the 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 current analysis uh, that the administration has put together makes all kinds of assumptions on you know individual technologies. How much does it cost? What's the lead time that's needed to actually get it into the cars? And I should add, uh, for full disclosure, that actually some of those assumptions are more pessimistic than two years ago. But there's also, in some cases, good evidence from you know uh, academic studies that it it may the previous analysis may indeed have been too optimistic. Right. I think what we're consistently seeing is that the the current proposal has moved every single assumption to about the sort of most pessimistic end of the range. So the question is, you know, do we really believe this was a good faith scientific effort or does it seem to be sort of playing with the numbers to get the conclusion you want? And, and you said something a little while ago, which I think is is a question that a lot of people have been, have been wondering, uh, is whether or not the want to pull back on moving these standards even far farther was being driven by the auto industry or if it was being driven by the oil industry, which in many cases is serving the gasoline that all these vehicles need or a majority of these vehicles need. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we can all speculate. I would put my money uh, actually even a little bit more in the oil industry than the car industry because actually some companies have already spent lots of time and resources into developing these electric cars uh, they already need to comply with more stringent standards internationally. They need to comply with the California standards nationally. So in some sense, they're already on a pathway towards more aggressive fuel economy anyway. So the, the, which industry stands to gain uh, to, to lose the most? Well, yeah. probably those who sell gasoline. Then, and so then I guess to a degree, this is a little bit of a PR move to try and downplay the electrical vehicle market, the autonomous market, in favor of the combustible engine market. Absolutely. 844 Wharton is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Arthur Van Bentham of the Wharton School joining us. He's part of uh, research done by a group of uh, academics titled Flawed Analysis of U.S. Auto Fuel Economy Standards. Again, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Going back to the, the 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 size of the auto market uh, and this estimate of six million fewer vehicles, when I saw that, I was thinking realistically the only way I think we would see that is if the baby boomer generation obviously is getting older and then they would not be using vehicles, and then you don't have potentially with millennials and Gen Z as much of a want to use vehicles by them in comparison to the to the baby boomers. 
Yeah, that's a good point, although I would say two things to that. So first of all, there may be all kinds of other reasons why the fleet expands or shrinks. Right. But then sometimes that's orthogonal to the question that we're talking about here, which is what is the effect of the standards? But you're right that there could be all kinds of other demographic trends. Now, recent research, a lot of people would think that with more, more people moving to cities and uh, you, you, would, you would see a decline in car ownership because of you know changes in, in norms and culture, it's not quite as clear. So there may be a little bit of an effect, but I don't think it's it's realistic to to, to assume that all of a sudden we'll be biking and buying our organic, uh, you know, groceries uh, all the time. Because because if you're talking about a loss of six million vehicles, even if it's on uh, a majority of that is on the used car market, that's going to end up being a significant negative impact on the auto industry, and then that kind of rolls that cycle forward where it's not only a, a, a problem for the auto industry, it is then a, a problem for the oil industry producing the gasoline yeah. and, and the need to have it in general. Yeah, that's that's right. I think the from from the perspective of of an of oil companies, what are their what determines their long term sort of you know growth of, of gasoline sales in the US, um, whatever the government decides on cafe standards is probably the number one most important risk, if you will. Uh, even relative to all these other trends that you mentioned. As you're saying now, the next year or so is really going to be an important time to watch this because of the potential legal battles that we are going to see, and many of them involving the state of California, correct? That's correct, yeah. So California has this very interesting historical exception. This was put in place in the 70s because they faced these severe smog issues in L.A., so typically, cars are regulated federally. So it means that if the, if the EPA decides to, to you know, put in a regulation, states can just do whatever they want. Yeah. The only difference is that California can decide to go more stringent. And then every other state has a simple choice. They can either stick with the feds or they can follow California. But they can't do anything in between or, or above and beyond California. And realistically, what has been the history of automakers? I would think that when you're talking about selling a car to you know 50 states, the chances are you're going to want to go with the lower standard and work off of that, correct? Yeah, well, historically, what you tend to see is that California, this has happened before, cases in which California proposed a more stringent rule, and typically 13, 14 other states follow, roughly 40% of the market. Now, even though that's a minority of the market, it is such a pain for automakers to have to comply with different sets of standards. And in practice, what you see is that this there, there may be dual standards for a while, but then uh, companies tend to adopt this more stringent standards even nationally just for simplicity reasons. So in, in that sense, California is extremely powerful. What's your expectation that we're going to see here uh, play out over the next year or two? This is very interesting. I mean, this I'm, I'm like you should ask the experts in the in the in Wharton's environmental law uh, department. Yeah. So my reading of this is that there's good reason to believe that there is precedent for the California waiver, and um, a number of experts I talk to think uh, it's it's it would be very strange and counter to previous decisions to deny California the waiver. That said, with the you know <laughs> the increased politicized courts, it's I find it very hard to uh, uh, to predict. Well, and I was going to say the political nature between the current federal government and the state of California, that tension alone would probably make it uh, a, a point to watch. And the potential of having that waiver pulled back would be, 
you know, would be a possibility. It, absolutely. I mean, I think the California Air Resources Board is uh, close to being at war with the federal EPA. And, and you know, if nothing else, it'll be an um, interesting and almost entertaining fight to watch over the next 12 months. Where do you think that, and again, maybe this is just speculation, but where do you think the, the auto industry is standing in this in this fight right now? You know, I think the automakers certainly thought that the old standards were being extremely aggressive and, uh, you know, they, they would have a hard time um, meeting it. It would be actually pretty, pretty expensive. But they never asked for a complete freeze. They were just asking for a little bit of a reduction because they also know that uh, if they have to comply with stringent rules in other countries and other states, you know, it's, it's sort of a pathway that's already being started. Um so I actually don't believe the automakers would uh, would mind it very much if the final outcome is going to be a compromise in which right. it's not going to be a freeze. But let's say, you know, as usual in politics, we sort of just end up somewhere in the middle. So it'll keep rising, but maybe not quite as fast. As a national standard, do you think? Or, or will the state still continue to, to try and have their impact? Um, well, my guess, what typically happens, there was a similar case in 2009 where California threatened to set a more stringent standard for itself in these 13 other states. Yeah. And then typically there's negotiations with the yeah. federal government and then the feds say, okay, fine, if we do something in the middle, will you drop the lawsuit? And that's a very right. real possibility. Great seeing you. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Arthur Van Bentham from here at the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 